Well, this afternoon, brethren, I want to talk about what is the foundation of our faith. The foundation, or what are the foundations, in a sense, of our faith. Obviously, our main spiritual foundation is Christ. Many are disoriented from that, and they're disoriented from the real foundations that they ought to have about the truth as a whole. And uh, certainly, we need to be sure of our foundations. We're in a very dangerous time right now. Ephesians chapter 2 tells about the spiritual foundation. I'll just read that first because I don't want anyone to feel we're leaving that out. We're not. We talk about that all the time as I did the whole sermon that I preached week before last. But in Ephesians 2 and verse 8 and 19, Paul, writing to the Gentiles primarily at Ephesus, says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the New Testament apostles, the Old Testament prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So Christ is the major part of that foundation, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and he will, you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. God is to live His life in each one of us through the Holy Spirit. And obviously, we have to grow in grace and in knowledge. We're far from perfect, all of us. We have to keep changing. We have to keep studying and praying and growing and asking God to form Christ in us more and more every month and every year that we live. But the foundation is the apostles and prophets, which certainly means their writings, and Christ Himself, who is not only our Savior, but is alive as the living head of the church and the one who's guiding world affairs. Millions only know about a false Christ, though, as most of you know. They've heard about little Lord Jesus away in a manger and about Father Christmas, as they call him over in England, or Santa Claus coming down and stuffing the stockings with things and putting presents under the Christmas tree, which is a lie. They've heard about the lie of Easter and the resurrection of Christ at the wrong time, which denies the special identifying sign that Christ gave that He was the Messiah, that He would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights, which cannot be figured in between Friday evening and Sunday morning in the traditional Protestant Catholic sense. So most have heard about a false Christ who in effect came and did away with His Father's law or kept it so we don't have to and all kinds of wrong ideas. We know that. The true Christ is our foundation. We do know that. But beside that, a whole wave of false ideas are now coming up about God and about Christ. Some of you know that a British theologian, a famous British theologian, has just written this book called The God Delusion. Last spring, Dr. James Tabor wrote about the Jesus dynasty, and then his friend Bart Ehrman up at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill came out with another book, a similar one, kind of poo-pooing the Bible, poo-pooing the reality of Christ and what he did. And now they're coming out with this whole documentary about the Jesus tomb and the fact that Christ was buried in a tomb and his body might still be there or his ashes or part of them might be there. And that's where Jesus was buried, as though Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. And this James Cameron is trying to use, uh, who, uh, who uh, directed the Titanic movie, very clever, and he's using all kinds of numerical ideas and, and statistics and so on. There's no real proof, of course, because this happened 2,000 years ago. They have no way, they don't have any DNA of Christ. They can't begin to start to commence to get ready to prove that that was Christ's body at all. 
But they try to come up with all of this garbage and if people don't listen carefully and think carefully, they can assume that this might be right and it destroys their faith. And brethren, I hope all of you can understand and pray for our young people. We have a number of young people here. But that will particularly hurt the faith of our young people unless they're grounded. So I ask all of you to listen carefully today and especially you young people. I'm going to give you some basics about the fundamentals of our faith which you can prove. I'm not talking about just what the Bible said because these ideas coming out now undermine the Bible. They give people doubts about the Bible. So if you just say the Bible says, well, it says, well, how do you even know the Bible is inspired and all that kind of stuff? All this stuff is coming out. So many young people will be influenced by that. I remember back in 1944 and 1945, I went through a kind of a spiritual uh, epiphany, you might say, where I was beginning to be stirred by beginning to hear Mr. Armstrong on the program and his voice would fade in and in and out. And I'd hit the old radio sometimes. Literally, it wouldn't work. And I'd hit it going loud again. <laughs> and his voice was coming up from XEG in Mexico. And then that following summer, my friend Jimmy Mallett, whom I wrestled with thousands of hours, a little boy, uh, cub bears, you know, wrestling around, rolling around on the grass. He had his neck broken in wrestling, doing the very thing he and I did so much. And it hit me. It shook me. Then one of my favorite high school football heroes uh, uh, was killed uh, in the Second World War, went off and his body was sent back and we had this memorial service and the taps and then the echo taps and all the girls were crying. It was very emotional. And I thought, people are being killed. I don't understand this. And why did God let Jimmy die? And I began to seek for God in a certain way. I didn't do it perfectly. I don't do anything perfectly. But I did begin to seek for God at that time and with the help of my uncle, I began to hear Mr. Armstrong. And I went through a whole process of reading various books and Uncle Paul would give me various Bible commentaries from Protestants. And we began to hear different ones on XCG and other stations on the radio. And then I began to send off to various people that have ads. I remember this one guy used to have this ad in the Joplin paper, kind of like his sunrise coming up over. And it talked about the wisdom of the East. And you send off and you find about the great wisdom of the, of the people in Tibet and how they knew the secrets of the meaning of life. So we sent off for that. Well, we were not stupid. We were about 15, 16 years old, you know, and reading a lot of stuff. And it was obvious they used a lot of big words and reasoning around. They didn't have any understanding of anything. Then I went to junior college, and they had the retired folk professor from the University of Iowa. The only reason Joplin Junior College got him is because he was forced to be retired at age 70, but he kept on teaching. He was good. He had been very respected in that field. And so I had a course of philosophy, and I studied as you know, Plato and Socrates and all those guys and many other more modern ones, such as David Hume, the British philosopher, and others of that sort. And I can see that they did not understand anything either. Their ideas contradicted each other. It was all human imagination. I was hearing Mr. Armstrong, and he began to make sense. But I went through a process, and I began to ask God on my knees. A whole series of things happened, which won't prove anything to you, so I won't go through that. But each of you needs to go through that. And once in a while, all of us need to go back and really prove and reprove to ourselves the foundations of our faith. So when these things come along from Hollywood, and they're very clever, they've got all kinds of gadgets, and they've got all these so-called experts up there say, oh, this and that, and they have deep, nice voices. Well, Mr. Armstrong had a deep, nice voice too. And the guys who advertise cigarettes on the radio have nice voices too. You know what I mean? And so on. But anyway, you have to figure that out and see what is really proved. So I think it's very easy for people, especially our young people, to be influenced by that. 
And I hope all of us can go back and review these basic things. I want to give you three keys this afternoon to think about, and I hope that you will go beyond this. I can't begin to cover all the information about these keys in one sermon at all. I'm putting them out there, and I challenge you young people particularly, take a little bit of time. The television set will still be there next month, and maybe spend the rest of this month a little bit more studying these things, proving these things, and not just listening to a bunch of garbage on the radio or wild so-called music or watching television, which is basically a, a mental wasteland, as they call it. The first basic foundation and proof of God and the Bible is creation. That has been greatly undermined by Satan's doctrine of evolution, or as the British pronounce it properly, evolution, because it's very evil. <laughs> but they try to undermine the concept of God. And that's very clever, very clever. They've got a lot of people sold on that, as you know. Back in Romans, turn to Romans, and Romans can't disprove evolution, I understand that. People say, well, you're not into science now. I'm just giving you some things to think about. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. God says in His Word, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they, and in this whole chapter, if you read about it, brethren, the homosexuality, the lust, the stupidity that he's talking about here, this was describing perfectly Plato, Socrates, and many of the ancient philosophers who were, many of them, homosexuals, perverts, and were all messed up in their minds and their lives in many different ways. So they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. God says back in the Old Testament, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we have to really understand that. They will call us fools, and in years to come, they're going to attack us. They're going to attack our God. They're going to attack the Bible. They're going to attack Jesus Christ. They're going to attack this church particularly if we're out there on the cutting edge of preaching what's going to happen and why. That's not a popular message. People don't like to hear that their playhouse is going to be disrupted their normal way of life and their whole system and all their friends and everything around them. They don't like that. And they won't like us when we come out with specific prophecies about what's going to happen. But we know that these things have happened and they're going to happen. And the only way the church of God in the last 55 or 70 years has been off in any way, and I get off on that occasionally myself, so let me confess it, we have always wanted to follow the Apostle Paul's example. <laughs> Cover myself here. He said in 1 Thessalonians that, you know, the dead shall rise and we shall rise and, uh, to meet them in the air and things like that. He thought it would be in his time. The Apostle Paul clearly did the way he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Mr. Armstrong was off primarily in prophecy, not many other things over the years, except he got the timing wrong. And certainly I have hoped that it would be sooner I personally feel that the tribulation, this nation will be going down and this terrible thing will start to hit us in a major way within the next 8 to 12 years. I don't mind you saying that's my personal. That's First Meredith 3, 4. Okay? <laughs> that's not the Bible. That's First Meredith 3, 4. Now, Meredith has been wrong on dates. But you watch. You just watch over the next several years. 
And I used to think that maybe one-eighth, if we have eight more years till the tribulation begins, let's say, which we might be according to that, then we'd have one-eighth of the terrible things happen, then another eighth, then another eighth. I didn't think it just that way, but I thought it might be even. I think and realize now God is very merciful. He's letting just a little bit happen. So the last three or four years just before the tribulation, God indicates disaster after disaster after disaster. And things may speed up and big things may impact one another on one another in a dramatic way. So maybe you can go to sleep for the next three or four years, and then the three or four years after that, you know, you can wake up again. But don't count on it. Because as Richard David Armstrong, my friend, got wiped out at age 29, as my friend Jimmy Mallett got wiped out at age 16, as many people in their lives, very suddenly and unexpectedly, long before the three score and ten, God has not guaranteed that you will live forever or even to age 70 in this life. So we need to be prepared always to meet our God. Prepare to meet thy God, God tells us in one of his prophecies. So we need to always be ready to do that. But God describes this, how these great men tried to do away with the concept of God and the things that are made in his eternal power. And they have been very cleverly undermining the whole idea of a real God. They, of course, in doing that, they try to leave out the need. I just want to put some questions. If you're taking notes, you may want to write some of this down. They leave out the need for a designer. This tremendous world and all the overlapping laws and interrelated things demands a designer. The bees feed on the flowers to get the pollen, to pollinate other so on, and to keep on going. If you didn't have the bees and the, and the flowers created at the same time, each would die off. You've got all kinds of things that show that all these things came into existence. That's just one of dozens of things and things that cannot be properly answered. They cannot design, uh, under, underscore really that or disprove that, the need for a lawgiver. They often start out their theses, if you read what they write, and I have read dozens of articles in some parts of major books about evolution or evolution, and they often assume, and most of them assume, in a sense, there are these laws. Well, there's the law of gravity. They just assume that's there and the law of aerodynamics, the law of biogenesis, and all these laws. Did all these laws just happen? Why should they assume these laws that are just immutable like the law of gravity? Well, I have to drop or drop this Bible. I don't have to push it down. I just let it drop. It automatically goes down. There's a law in motion. Who made that law? Is there a great lawgiver? Is there a great designer? They like to skirt around that and they skirt around the idea of the real first cause. They don't really have any real answer for that. They says, well, men begin in the warm ocean slime. Well, who created the ocean and who created the slime <laughs> and who created the amoeba that supposedly were your ancestors? Do you see what I mean? They assume that's there. Where did that come from? Well, maybe that came from Mars. They're beginning to discover water on Mars. Wow, maybe that's where it began. Okay, where did Mars come from? You see what I mean? This Where did all this come from? This awesome universe. They can't answer that. There's no answer they have for that. And so we've got to realize that. And also, uh, they have no remote explanation for the greatest physical creation of all, perhaps, the human mind. The very tool they use against the one who gave them that mind. They are awed, many people are, by the computer. 
the computers can now spew out billions, not millions, but billions of pieces of information per second. I can't really understand that. It means they just all go out at once, I guess. Per second, how can a machine do that? Wow, how, how smart we are. How smart we are. But who made the mind that made the computer? How much greater is the human mind than the computer? And the scientists ever now and then acknowledge that. They know that. The human mind is so much smarter than a computer, although there are certain things a computer can do, you know, in a methodical way, an automatic type way, that the mind can't do as fast or whatever. But the mind made the computer. The human mind, where did it come from? So you have to understand that there was a great God. So that's the thing. So the real understanding of the creation and the creator is an awesome proof of a real personal God who made us in his image when we think it through. I could spend the rest of the sermon on that, of course. The second point, the second basic key I want to give you, and one that's easier to prove to a carnal mind, because the carnal mind, of course, doesn't like to think about these other things and doesn't like to study science books and so on, is prophecy. The carnal mind wants to preserve itself, the law of self-preservation. Everybody wants to save his own hide. That's one reason Mr. Ames and I put so many prophetic programs on, because they get, big, they get bigger response when we put one on about the Ten Commandments or conversion, well... The response is sort of, you know, well, we've, we've heard that before. That's not very exciting. But if you say the atomic bomb is going to be used here or something, wow, we want to know about that. So they write in or they call in for programs of that sort to save their hide. We've always known that. The very first time I was in an evangelistic campaign back in 1956 in Fresno, California, Mr. Armstrong asked me to join Dick Armstrong, and my wife found some old notebooks. I think she was showing me that the other day and trying to clean my office organize it somewhat. Of course, you know everything I have is organized. How would anyone organize what I have? But uh, ask Monica. Anyway, <laughs> I get behind. So she was trying to find everything to get organized. And here are these old sermon notebooks from 1954, 1956. And the very first sermon in the Fresno campaign was, and of course, Mr. Armstrong gave it to us. In a sense, he told us what to speak on, the topics, the basic topics for the first several days. It was a five-week, six-nights-a-week campaign. People wouldn't come today, but CV was just coming in. So the people had to hear 30 sermons in a row. And I gave 16 of them, and Dick Armstrong gave 14. But I gave the first one, will the hydrogen bomb be used against America? I didn't say Fresno because it wasn't quite that big. <laughs> but I showed, of course, it would be and uh, explained Matthew 24 that all flesh would be destroyed except God intervened and this type of thing. We knew, Mr. Armstrong knew that's what people are interested in. They always have been. So prophecy is a very important way to prove to yourself, frankly, and to outsiders the existence of God if you're willing to take a little time to look into it, not just take it for granted. And God tells us about prophecy. He devoted one-third of his inspired word to prophecy. He says, don't put prophecy down. It was very important to God. One-fourth of this book is devoted to prophecy. God tells us back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we also have the prophetic word made more sure, or as the King James has it, like the King James better once in a while, we have the sure word of prophecy. The sure word of prophecy, which you do well to take heed as the light that shines in a dark place. We're supposed to pay attention to prophecy. And God tells us that 
in a number of places in the Bible. So we do need to understand, and I certainly challenge you young people, look into and prove these basic prophecies and try to get help, Bible helps. You can go to various things like Halley's Bible Handbook and commentaries and other books and so on, but be sure you study the Bible itself and dig into it and get some history books that really show these things. And you can get some keys as to which history books by reading some of Mr. Armstrong's articles, by reading some, to some of Mr. Ames or, or Mr. John O'Gwen's books that refer to these histories. But history, historians know that these things took place. It's not just Bible scholars that talk about it. There are things that absolutely took place, and historians, if they are honest, know that they did take place, that God said hundreds of years in advance. Hundreds of years. And so the God of the Bible... Not the God of the Koran, by the way. The Koran, the Islamic Bible, has no such prophecies. And no other book in the world has detailed specific prophecies about major events like the Bible. No other book even comes close. Understand that. The God who inspired the Bible, He is God. And He is in charge of the rise and fall of the nations of the world and all the major events. Uh, turn back to Isaiah 46, if you would, brethren. Isaiah uh, chapter 46 at this point, And God tells us a little bit about that in His inspired Word. He says in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and none is like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I also will bring it to pass. I have purposed it will, I also will do it. So God, the God of the Bible, is in charge. And we have to really understand that. And you can prove that to yourself. I'll give you just a insight into a few prophecies. Otherwise, of course, each one of these prophecies might take an entire sermon if you went into them thoroughly. Most of you know we've gone over the basic one of Daniel chapter 2. Turn to Daniel 2. This is one of the major prophecies that all people familiar with the Bible are familiar with. It tells you the four major empires that were to rise. And nearly every scholar that really looks into it honestly knows that the book of Daniel was written about 600 B.C., 604 to 530, but it was written around 600 to 590 B.C. And these prophecies were just beginning to be fulfilled and the most of them had not even yet started, had not even yet started what Daniel was writing. There's no way that this man could have written these things in the way he did. So we read about the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and then in verse 27, Daniel 2, 27, Daniel answered, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, astrologers, magicians, soothsayers cannot declare, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. In other words, down through time, way beyond their generation. And then he describes, as you'll see in verse 31, a great image whose splendor was excellent. The image had a head of gold chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, his legs iron, and his feet be part of iron and clay. And in verse 34, you watched while a stone 
was cut out without hands. Of course, we understand that stone was Jesus Christ, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So here's describing the four great ruling empires which extended, that is the Roman Empire, at least clear down to Christ's return. And uh, he says this stone, the latter part of verse 35, that struck the image became a great mountain. Now the word mountain is used throughout the Old Testament to represent a government or a kingdom and fill the whole earth because the kingdom of God will take over the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we'll tell the interpretation you, O king of king, are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom. You are this head of gold, he says at the end of verse 38. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you. And that, of course, was the ancient Medo-Persian empire because they began to have two different types of people and it wasn't as strong. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And, of course, that was the Greco-Macedonian empire of Alexander the Great. And then verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all those things. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. The remnants, any remnants of the other kingdoms were crushed by the time Rome came along or under Rome. Whereas you saw the feet and toes coming clear down to the ten kings to rise in Europe that will be arising within the next five to ten years of your life probably. Your life, I say probably now as far as the date, <laughs> all right, but probably the next five to ten years of your life, the five, the ten kings, the ten toes, he says, whereas you saw the feet and toes, they're mixed up. There are different nations in Europe today and they speak different languages. Most of them are Roman Catholic, but some of them are very weak. The Catholic Church has been very weak and somewhat shattered itself by this pedophilia scandal and all the priests out abusing young boys and all the other stuff they've been into. And the church attendance is very low in many of the European countries. Suddenly, the present pope or another pope to come in the next few years is going to come on the scene and do great miracles and an electrifying feeling will come over Europe. Now, I've been there. Some of you have. But I have seen some of the most electrifying sights of my entire life since that I was born over there that I've never seen in the United States. And I've been on the football team and basketball team and and boxing and all that, as you know, and I've been to sports events and professional sports events, but I have never in my life since the day I was born seen people electrified and hysterical as I saw in the Pope's Summer Palace in Castel Gandolfo back in the summer of 1954 when we were surrounded and the Pope began to appear and they brought out his stuff. You've heard me describe it bit by bit and built up. And when he appeared on the balcony, the women especially were beginning to cry and scream and the peasant women had the... Their, their tears running right down, and it was quite a sight. Their God was appearing on that balcony, and I have never seen anything like that. The hysteria was sweeping over them. And if you see the torchlight parades of Adolf Hitler and other things like that, where Mussolini got on a similar balcony in Rome, and they were screaming, Vivil Duce! And they, the Gentiles want a strong man. It's going to take a strong man to get the Iraqis together. It's going to take a strong man to get Egypt fully together again. It's going to take a strong man to be, coming, to be the coming Mahdi or whatever, the king of the south that they're going to have in a few years in the Arab world. We don't know now who that will be, but it's going to be someone that, like that. That's what they like. They go for. Well, they're going to have their opportunity finally, of course, because Jesus Christ will come, except he won't be a man, but he will be the forceful ruler 
that they actually want and need. They, they psychologically need that. But Christ will be there and we will be there helping him in total power that we do not have now. And yet total wisdom and love and patience and mercy and all that kind of thing to use the power that we have the right way. So he describes these toes and how they're going to be smitten by this iron and so on. And finally, in the days of these kings, that is these toes, the final ten toes, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. The government of God on this earth. Now these things begin to happen were just beginning to happen actually when Daniel was writing about 600 B.C. And the Jews, and they understand because this book was circulated in libraries. Some people tried to say Daniel wrote later. No, he did not. He wrote back then. And these things mainly happened, overwhelmingly happened, 90% or more happened after he was gone. And these things were written. One empire after the other after the other, exactly the way that man described it. I don't have time here to go into all the history of it. I challenge you to do it. If you're interested in proving that there is a great God who gives you life and breath, you can look into history. You can look into our booklets and you can see that that is the case. That God is alive. You turn back to Daniel chapter 9. Turn with me, if you would, brethren, to chapter 9 here of Daniel. And here you find some of the famous 70 weeks prophecy. He said here uh, in verse 22, this angel informed Daniel and said, uh, O Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, when Daniel began to cry out to God, please help us understand, why are we in this slavery? We've just been here in Babylon all this time. What's going to happen? Help us, O God, help us understand. When he first started praying, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined. Now, we know in Bible prophecy, a day is a year in prophecy. So, 70 weeks, of course, would be 490 literal days. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So, he's talking about Jerusalem. It's not some mystery. To finish the transgression, the Savior was going to come to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This has to be the coming Messiah. And again, written, as you know, about 600 years before Christ came to seal up the vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that here's the key going from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which is, as all scholars acknowledge, the major command was 457 B.C. 457 B.C. Remember when you're counting, there's no year zero. So from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., you don't go to 1 B.C. and then year zero and then 1 A.D., you immediately just skip over. So it's one year less in that sense, depending on how you look at it. But that's the way it's counted. That until Messiah the Prince, and then there shall be seven weeks. We know after the original seven weeks, the temple began to be rebuilt. And then 62 weeks, the rest of the prophecy was to take place. Again, and the wall, even though troublesome times, and after the 62 weeks, that is 7 plus 62 is 69 weeks, which would be 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, when I used to teach this, just again very briefly in, second, or in first year Bible, 
I've put it up on the blackboard. And you can do that just on your own there if you want to in your notes. 483, and you count from 457 B.C., and we know that Christ's ministry began in 31 A.D., and there's no year zero. Count 483. And Christ came exactly, exactly on time. So you need to understand that. How could this young Jew, 600 years before Christ, give the exact date that Christ's ministry began? Unless there is a great God, a real God, and unless that very real God inspired this book. That's the thing, brethren, and that's the thing, young people. These things are real. It's not just daddy and mother's religion. It's not just a sentimental idea. The world doesn't believe a lot of this, even the so-called Christians in the world. A lot of them never hear sermons like this. A lot of them don't understand or even agree necessarily. But the church of God does understand. So these things were prophesied and these things are happening. Also, you can go to Isaiah uh, chapter 52, if you would. Isaiah chapter 52, brethren. And here... Uh, you find another wonderful uh, prophecy beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God talks about a special servant, the Messiah who was to come. So this is obviously about him. Shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high, just as many were as astonished at you. So his visage, that is his face, was marred more than any man. And when Christ was beaten and scourged with the official scourging, the hide was torn right off him. His face must have been torn to pieces. Here it is predicted 600 years ahead of time. And his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle as they used to sprinkle the blood of the covenant on the people and so forth. Many nations. And then it goes on in chapter 53. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He'll grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of a very dry ground. The ground was very dry at that time, spiritually speaking. The people were hard-hearted in Jesus' day. You know that. They didn't accept Christ. They rejected Him. They killed Him. He has no form nor comeliness. A lot of people think, well, Christ looked like a real skinny woman with long hair or something. Others think, and, and real weak-looking. And, of course, the Bible doesn't show that at all. The Bible shows that He's the one who said, whatever you do, do with your might. And He was a builder with stone and heavy timber. He must have been very strong. But he didn't just lift weights. He didn't stand in front of the mirror, you know, and look at his, his lats, as we say, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. He didn't have that kind of vanity. But he was a very powerfully built young man. But he was so much like the other Jews in the way he looked overall, they actually had to hire Judas to kiss him to be sure which one he was. You'd think if he had any very unusual thing about him, they wouldn't do that because he came back and forth in and out of the temple over and over and over again. That's where he did his teaching. They saw him, but they knew he looked so normal, so average. He wasn't exceptionally handsome. He wasn't exceptionally tall or short or something else. They had to hire, pay Judas 30 pieces of silver to be sure they got the right one. So even though he was the son of God, he was also the son of man through Mary, and God led his human form not be great or small, but very normal, very average looking. No beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You might think the Messiah would be very happy or very, you know, filled with anger or something. No, he had that sorrow, that deep realization of what was in man. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Well, they did. If you're the son of God, come on down, smart aleck. That's what they told him as he was dying. You read those accounts of Christ being hung on the cross and how they spit in his face and hit him some of the time before he was hung up there and said as he was covered with a, a sack over his head, prophesy who hit you. Come on, come on. And made fun of him. That's what they did. But they thought he was smitten by God, that he deserved it. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And the New Testament makes that very clear. A man was to come along to take our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are, or as First Peter tells us, and First Peter 2.24, Peter, inspired by God, translated it in the past tense because by then it had been done by his stripes we were healed. That terrible beating he took was to pay the penalty of our physical sin so we could be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and so on. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, verse 9, as a sheep. We know that. He didn't argue. Pilate was astonished. He didn't even try to give an answer a lot of times. He could have said, listen to that, but he said very little. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And here's something even about his death. Prophesied 600 years in advance. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. He was laid in a fresh tomb, apparently, the I would think, the garden tomb is my best guess, but they, no one knows. because And that's not the tomb they're using in James Cameron's movie, by the way. They usually pick the wrong thing, of course, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, in, put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So Christ became the sin offering. A whole nation, as I explained a couple of weeks ago, pre-enacted Jesus' sacrifice. The entire nation of Israel, year after year, took a young, perfect, unblemished male lamb, cut its throat, shed its blood on the beginning of the 14th day, picturing the Lamb of God. The whole nation, year after year after year, pre-enacted what Jesus was later to go through as the Lamb of God. All kinds of things done in this case, 1,500 years in advance at the Passover. He shall seed his, uh, see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He goes on. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And in his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He was our sin bearer. Therefore, I will divide with him the portion of the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's why God says he'll be king of kings and lord of lords. And you know that statement in Philippians 2. He has a name above every name in heaven and earth because of what he went through. Because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was considered a crook, a criminal. And so they gave him the death, the slow agonizing death of the most despised criminals, the crucifixion. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession. And even as he died, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, lots of prophecies were given in advance about the details. Even the details of Christ's death and crucifixion, other scriptures in Zechariah and elsewhere, even about how they divided, they gambled and divided his clothing up and all that kind of thing. But I'm just giving you a few about Christ himself. Another huge prophecy and brethren, we take this one for granted. I know most of you do because you've heard about it so much. But that is the prophecy about our own nation. 
And it is inspiring. And when you think and when you hear us sing, God bless America, and from sea to shining sea, the words of the great servant of God, Israel, ought to come into your mind. Turn with me back to Genesis 49. Genesis 49, and here you go back 4,000 years almost before Christ. And at the, well, not 4,000 years, but let's say 3,400 or whatever it would have been at this time. Genesis 49, here is Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, called his sons and said as he was dying, as you know, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you. When? In the next few years? No, in the last days. Did Jacob know what the last days were? Yes, he was a prophet of God. He was one of the patriarchs of God. And the New Testament makes that plain. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Reuben had a lot of ability. Reuben has a sense of style and culture and the French language was the language of diplomacy and culture for many, many years. But because the French have had kind of a come easy, enjoy life and have their drinks and their mistresses and all, they've gone down. And God took away the birthright from them. It's kind of interesting, frankly, very astonishing how it happened. Because over and over, even in modern history, Reuben had the power. Reuben was ready to get all these nations. And at the last minute, a lot of you know what I mean, it shifted. And suddenly it fell right into the hands of his brother Joseph. Reuben controlled Canada. The French controlled Canada. And suddenly the British moved in and took it all over. Reuben controlled 15 states in the middle of the United States called the Louisiana Purchase. And at a certain point, because he had some Napoleonic Wars and other expenses he was having to pay for, why this man sold it to the United States for $15 million. Well, of course, you couldn't even buy a big building for that today. (laughs) But he sold the better part of 19 states to us, just like gave it to us. And it was taken from the French at that point in time. The French had control of India for a while. Later, it went to France. I mean, to Britain, and the French had control of various nations in Africa, and many of them later ended up in the hands of England. And all over the world, other places, you'll find that. Reuben had it somehow, and yet at the last minute, somehow, it just slipped away, and God gave it to the sons of Joseph who were given the birthright promise. You read about that promise in Mr. Gwynn's wonderful booklet, and I... I need to drill on the name because I've seen about five names now. It was Mr. Armstrong's old booklet that I first read in Joplin, Missouri, The United States in Prophecy. Then later we changed it to the United States and Great Britain in Prophecy, I think, and then later the United States and British Empire in Prophecy. And then we started under in Global and we had one name and now we've had two other names. But anyway, it's the United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. I think something like that. Is that right now, Mr. Bomer? Okay, I'm getting close. <laughs> we keep changing the names, so I'm even confused about that. But that was a wonderful booklet written by Mr. John O'Gwen. And by the way, Mrs. O'Gwen is here, I think. Is she here? Uh, uh, okay, Monica. So, oh, yeah, let's see if you're there. I hope all of you greet Mrs. O'Gwen. She's on our staff now, and we certainly want to welcome her, and she's going to be uh, Dr. Winnell's secretary, and she'll be sitting out there along with Monica, and uh, so we're very grateful to have her helping us and helping us carry on the work, which I'm sure would make her husband very, very happy and us very happy because she's a lovely lady. But at any rate, he wrote that booklet and uh, tells us about the details of this prophecy. So Judah, I mean, not Judah, but then he tells a little bit later about Judah. He's 
He has the praise and so forth, but no big blessings. Simeon and Levi, verses 8 and 9, and, or 5 and 6, again, instruments of cruelty, no big blessings. Little comments about Zebulun and Issachar and Dan and Gad and Asher and Naphtali. In verse, uh, if I can read it here, verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He gives goodly words. What's said about Naphtali? That's all. <laughs> Think about it. That's all. Just that one little tiny kind of half verse. Then you come to our ancestor, Joseph. Joseph, the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph was given the birthright, the double blessing, and it came down through his two sons. Ephraim, today represented by the British Empire, the greatest empire that has ever existed, covered more land, more territory, more wealth over the entire earth than any other empire so far in human history. And the United States, the greatest and most powerful single nation ever in earth's history. Joseph is a fruitful bowel. A fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the wall, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, hated him. The other nations have always been jealous of us. You know that. They always are. If you're king of the mountain, the other nations always want to bring you down. And his arms were strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. It's not our goodness, it's what God has done. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Where is Jacob's pillar stone, the coronation stone? For most of modern times, it's been in Westminster Abbey, where I've seen it five or seven times. By the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep that lies under, tremendous wealth, mineral wealth, oil wealth, all kinds of wealth, with the blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep beneath, the blessings of the breasts and the womb. From sea to shining sea. It doesn't say that. But you can almost picture that in there, can't you, when you read this. The blessings from here and there and from sea to shining sea. God has given us these blessings. God bless America. And God bless Britain. And God will bless us because God rebukes and chastens every son He loves. Not every son He hates, but every son He loves. We have to be chastened to wake us up for our own good. But God gave us these awesome blessings. Blessings of the deep, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. We have tended to have multitude of children in times past, and our children have been healthier. They've been more free from disease. And the Europeans used to have more plagues than the Orientals and all those places, you know, had unsanitary conditions than in Africa and the Middle East and so on. And our children have been very blessed. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors out of the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. What do you mean separate? Well, remember, Joseph was the one they sold into slavery at age 17. And for 13 years, he was put down in various forms of imprisonment or humility until God finally made him king over all Egypt. But in modern times, where is Joseph? As the French generals acknowledged when Hitler was talking to them about how England was more safe because they, they had the English Channel, they said, that is indeed a formidable tank barrier, the English Channel. <laughs> and, and France was overrun and Belgium was overrun and Czechoslovakia and Poland and all the rest were overrun. Britain had the separation by the English Channel. And the United States had 3,000 miles of the Atlantic Ocean separated from the other Israelitish nations in that way. And that's the way we have been in modern times. The people of Joseph in Britain and their also, Ephraimite cousins living in Canada, Australia, 
New Zealand and the white Saxo, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic peoples of South Africa the same way. They have been given these tremendous blessings. And when you travel to South Africa, you'll steal these tremendous buildings and beautiful roads and all these, these uh, vineyards and all these other blessings. Very beautiful country that God gave Britain and Britain built it all up. In India, the same way. And when David John Hill and I were there in 1963, some of the Indian businessmen told us, they said the British left too soon. Britain had given them much. The big, broad British-type boulevards, the great big statues, the big British-style buildings all over Delhi and Calcutta and the major cities. And now, of course, they're getting more modern ones. But when we were there, that's the way it was. And, of course, God gave it to the Britain, British. And now, because we've turned aside from God, He's beginning to take it away. These are awesome things. Where did God say all this, though? Genesis 49. He said that Britain would have all, that Joseph would have all those things. And then you turn a little later, if you would, brethren. Uh, better hurry along here. But let's turn quickly to Genesis 22. I don't want to read every scripture here, but turn to Genesis 22. And here we find a little bit more of the story. As Paul Harvey might say, the rest of the story. Here's the test where God was testing Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his only son. And when he passed that test and was willing to, then verse 15, the angel or the messenger, who really was Jesus Christ, because the word angel means messenger of the eternal, called to Abraham a second time. By myself I've sworn, says the ever-living one, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. A great gate. Some people may smirk at that. But brethren, as you know, until the last few years and even today, they practically never used the expression air gates. But I guess you could, but it didn't have any meaning until very recently. But even now, they don't use it. Mountain gates, they had the Khyber Pass and certain other passes, but they've had no effect for the last few hundred years when you've got tanks and cars and airplanes and everything else like that. The only gates that were really big gates were the sea gates. And then some people in the past uh, argued with me and said, well, that wouldn't apply to these ocean gates or the sea gates. And yet it's interesting, at the, southern, at the northern entrance of the Red Sea, we built the Suez Canal, one of the most important gates at all, of all, and that was taken away when I was over in England in the winter of 56, 57. We began to turn away, and God, after Mr. Armstrong told them that would happen, I was there in 54, the Suez Canal was taken away. But then the southern entrance to the Red Sea, you can't even get to the Suez Canal except you go through it first from that direction, is called the Bab el Mandeb. Look it up in the map. The Bab el Mandeb, what does Bab mean? B-A-B in the Hebrew and in the Arabic mean the same thing. It means the gate of Mandeb. That's what it means. Gate. These are sea gates. Very important that God gave these things. The gate of their enemies. I've been reading recently the various prophetic things that are taking place in the world. And the last several months they've been talking over and over about the Strait of Malacca tremendous amount of the shipping of China and India and the whole Southeast Asian economies has to pass through that great gate which India, England controlled, Britain controlled for so many years but has been taken away. The other great gate like that uh, that uh, we could talk about 
uh, is uh, the, the Strait of Hormuz. Kind of left my mind for a minute. And just recently, why a number of the oil analysts have been very concerned because uh, uh, what's his name, Amenajab of Iran, has said if we attack them or do something, he is going to close the Strait of Hormuz. And through the Strait of Hormuz at the southern entrance to the Persian Gulf there, uh, it, they, they, have to, they have to send about 70%, I'm trying to think as I talk here, about 70% of the Middle East oil passes through that gate. They could close us down. Western Europe might go freeze to death in the winter if they shut that gate, the Strait of Hormuz. God gave those gates to our people. And I was with Mr. Herbert Armstrong along with his wife and Dick Armstrong in 54 and we were together in Belfast, Northern Ireland and then up in Glasgow and Scotland, Manchester and down in London, England. And each place he said, you British have been given these great gates and he said, unless you turn back to the God of the Bible, he said, God is going to begin to bring you down and he's going to take away these gates. And just two years later, my wife and I were sent back over there and the Suez Canal was taken away. And from then on, all the gates have been taken away, about 10 or 12 major ones all over the earth, except for the Strait of Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands, which protect, of course, the latter. The Falkland Islands protect the southern tip around South America. And they're in danger. And you will read about one of them at least going or be taken away, I'm sure, in the next few years because Spain is agitating to get back to the Rock of Gibraltar. Mr. Armstrong never said they'd all be taken away, but he did say most of them. And most of them have already been taken away. And I heard that man say that many times back in the 1950s, long before it happened. How did he know that? Because he was a servant of the great God and because he believed this book. This book was very real to that man. And I hope it's real to you, brethren. So we do have to think about what this book says. In chapter 24 of Genesis, Rebekah's brothers blessed her. She went away to marry Isaac. And they said in verse 60, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. You see, the great blessing of American Britain today. And may your descendants possess the gates, plural this time, gates of those who hate them. Yes, we have done that. We have been given that, that great blessing. You turn to chapter 35, Genesis 35, and then it shows how God appeared to Jacob and said, your name is no more Jacob. This is verse 9. Your name shall be called, uh, verse 10 now, Israel, overcomer with God. So he called his name Israel. And verse 11, Genesis thirty-five, eleven. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Over 3,000 years ago, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations. One great nation. United States of America from sea to shining sea and a great company of nations, the greatest company of nations in human history, the British Empire shall proceed from you and kings shall come forth from your body. These things happen. The great God of our fathers gave us these things. These are not small things, young people. These are massive things. These are the biggest events in modern times when you think about it the continuation of the Roman Empire right down to the end and this final resurrection getting ready to occur right now and these greatest nations on earth, the United States and Britain, right in front of you and you've been blessed 
That's why you have all the TV sets and all the clothes and all the refrigerators and all the other stuff we have. The other nations don't have that. It's because of the blessings of Abraham. But now we're soft physically, mentally, and spiritually. And so God, as a loving father, is going to spank. But in his love, he did these things because he is God and because he describes or he controls the rise and the fall of nations. Back a number of years ago, Mr. John O'Gwen wrote at the beginning of his book, booklet on the Beast of Revelation. He says, This rapid succession of events in Eastern and Central Europe in 1989. Remember, brethren, in 1989 and 90. Again, some of you young people don't remember, but I remember it's vivid. And a lot of us older people remember it's exciting to me because I'd been preaching about it. Mr. Armstrong had been saying in church and in his writings that the Eastern Europeans were going to break away. But the, the, the commentators didn't understand that. The geopolitical experts didn't understand that. The Russians were in control. They had tens of thousands of troops, hundreds of thousands of tanks and guns and everything. It looked like they'd never get away. But when that happened, it didn't catch everyone by surprise. However, Mr. Gwen writes, there was a source that anticipated and reported on this startling turn of events a half century ahead of time. Notice what an editorial writer Sometimes it's better to read what some outsider says. We can't believe each other, all right? I know the human nature on that. This is what this man wrote in the Hendersonville, Tennessee, Free Press on December 7th, 1989. Quote from this Tennessee paper, from this fellow who'd been hearing Mr. Armstrong, obviously, on the radio. Quote, like a great many Americans, I have been watching the current political situation in East Germany with interest, while many have expressed surprise at the recent events and at East German cries for reunification of East and West Germany, I have to admit I haven't been too surprised by these events. The reason I haven't been particularly surprised is that for years I have occasionally read the publications of the late Herbert W. Armstrong. Armstrong predicted that the Berlin Wall would someday come down and the two German states would once again reunite into a powerful nation. End of quotation. And then Mr. Gwynn goes on to refer to articles that better not take your time, but where he talked about the Iron Curtain eventually coming down and the ways of being prepared for a colossal third force of European Federation that's going to happen. Plain truth, December 1956. How could he possibly have known, Mr. Gwynn writes. Anyway, that's a very inspiring thing to realize how real God is and how these things have happened. The third big pillar of truth foundation of truth that I'd like to talk about today. There are many, but that is God's promises. God's promises. And God shows us throughout the Bible that if we walk His way of life, we'll be blessed. And all kinds of little things. I'm coming to some bigger thing in just a moment. But just think about some of these little things. I know when I was growing up, a lot of articles were coming out. My mother read things quite widely. I take after her. She was a constant reader. But they were coming out with stuff about uh, women's breastfeeding and making fun of that. Well, we've got these formulas now. Nowadays, all the latest medical research shows us that breast milk is so much better off for children. But medical science was thinking for quite some time it was not the best, and so on. Back at that time, there were all kinds of people saying, and medical doctors, that circumcision was, was silly. It was just an idea of the Jews and didn't do any particular good. Then about 20 years ago, Dr. Mendelssohn, I think it was, so I don't have the book here, but one of these men, Mr. Ames and I both read this one, but he talked about circumcision. I think it was Mendelssohn's book uh, on uh, medicine, a medical heretic, Confessions of a Medical Heretic. He was a medical doctor and how 
tens of thousands of young women die every year. And he talked about Deborah going down the street in a casket toward her funeral and how she was a young married woman, age 35. She had to die prematurely, leaving behind her husband and three children. Why? Because of cervical cancer. Why? And he explained why. Because her husband had not been circumcised, and then he goes into it, how there's a little bit of smegna inside the, uh, the glands there that covers the male member that can harbor disease. And men that are not circumcised can very easily pass that on to their wives. And wives get cancer of the cervix three or four times as much if their husbands are not circumcised. I'm not talking nasty. I'm talking about medical science here. God knew that 3,500 years ago because he told Abraham to have his men circumcised. Then God told Abraham to circumcise them on the eighth day. Why the eighth day? Again, doctors for a long time said, well, circumcise them right away when they're born. Three days old, six days old, ten days, it doesn't make any difference. But God says the eighth day. And just in the last 20 or 30 years, as this doctor brought out, medical doctor, they have found that there's a certain blood clotting element called something plus vitamin K, another one, that reaches its peak in little baby boys on the eighth day. Little girls have it the same, just like this, but the boys start low and it hits a peak on the eighth day and then drops off. God said, do it on the eighth day. How could God know anything about medicine? You know what I mean? That's a joke. God made our bodies. Of course He knew about it. Long before the doctors ever figured it out, God said, the eighth day. These are small things. I just want us to think about it. Who is the God of the Bible? Does that God know anything about health? Does that God know anything about our bodies? Does that God know anything about cleanliness? The black death of the Middle Ages would have been avoided if men had used the laws of cleanliness that God describes in the Old Testament. If you have to relieve yourself, go outside the camp, cover it over with dirt. It's not nasty. It's health. God said, do it. But they didn't do it. They used to empty the open sewage, sometimes even out of the second-story windows in the gutters of the cities, and there were flies and mosquitoes around, and people died by the hundreds of thousands and millions because they did not obey the laws of God. And this book brings that out. Time after time, God shows He's way ahead of medical science. Medical science arrives 3,500 years late on some of these, in some of these situations. You think about it. God is real, my brethren. And so we need to understand God's way of life and God's promises that if you do what He says, you will be blessed. Now, there is a specific promise that I want to dwell on a little bit more. And that is referred to here in Luke chapter 10. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to this promise here, to this uh, example, I should say. It's not a promise in this particular instance. Because people will say, well, the apostles could do this and that, but other ministers can't. Oh, really? Notice what it says. Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. These 70 others are not called apostles. They were simply 70 young men sent out 35 teams, two by two, by Jesus Christ. And He told them what to do. And he told them to go into various houses and so forth. He says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking. Verse 7, for the labor's worthy of his hire. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And verse 9, 
and heal the sick. It wasn't just the twelve apostles. Heal the sick. We should be doing that more, but this faith in God to heal the sick has just been blasted right out of the brains of thousands of our members ever since the 1970s. And I could describe it to you how it began back then. And the people as a whole do not have the faith. Even when Jesus Christ went back to Nazareth, He could there do no mighty work, it says. Even the Son of God. Why? It says because of their unbelief. Not His unbelief, their unbelief. We have an attitude of unbelief. Today, you can take a pill to wake up, a pill to go to bed, a pill to get if you're fat, a pill if you're skinny, a pill if you do this, everything. And it's on the TV and it's in ads and, and magazines and papers and everywhere. And our whole generation has been reared on that so much that they find it hard to believe that God can intervene and heal them. And so, brethren, we do need to understand. We do need to know and believe that God can intervene and heal us. And I hope and pray a lot of you can begin to realize that and pray about this matter. This is a little bit apart from the sermon, but we've got to do that. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come. So they were constantly to do three things. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. You'll read that in Mark chapter 6 and many other places when Jesus sent them out. Back in Matthew 10, the 12 apostles. What about casting out demons? Well, he didn't specifically tell them to, but he probably did, because in verse 17, read verse 17, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Yes, they did cast out demons. Seventy men who were not apostles, because there was more of an attitude of faith, brethren, and God himself promises to heal if we'll put our faith and trust in him and over and over and over in the Bible, it says, according to your faith. I better not try to look all those up, but uh, anyway, uh, this principle is there. And of course, uh, <laughs> interesting, I turned back just a couple pages and without finding the other, but in uh, back in uh, Luke chapter 8, Jesus had rebuked the water and they were astonished and they, uh, they were scared at first and they said, uh, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and he said to them, this is verse 25, Where is your faith? In other words, why can't you rebuke the water? Now really, he meant that, brethren. If we walk with God and talk with God and fill our minds with this book more than we've been doing as a church, and these things begin to happen in the world, no doubt that will strengthen our faith as well. Big events shake us, and I pray that they will. I pray they'll shake the nations, but I pray they'll shake God's church too and help us all wake up will begin to put more faith and trust in God. Where is your faith? Jesus asked. And he meant it. Why can't we have more faith? If Jesus were alive today, he'd be saying that. But at any rate, that's something that God's ministers were to do. And we certainly do that today. We don't do it perfectly, but we do that, as many of you know. Then you turn, if you would, to James, the book of James, chapter 5, brethren. The book of James, chapter 5, and uh, here... You find in verse 14, James 5:14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you anoint with olive oil, just as a symbol of God's Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. That's a promise. But there has to be faith. There has to be faith. The prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If you're honestly righteous and you love God with all your heart, or close to that, try to, (laughs) none of us do it perfectly, and love your neighbor as yourself, again, overall, and walk in that, grow in that, and believe in God, God will hear your prayer. And you can have these things happen to you. And again, I've told so many examples of this, but I can't help remembering constantly, and I hate to repeat the same ones. I need to try to think back and get some new ones you haven't heard. But Dennis, what's his name? And I can't remember his last name. It comes in and out of my mind. One of my students, a married student, came up to me right after freshman Bible. He was an older freshman. He, I said, how come you weren't in class today? He came up with me out in the anteroom outside the the uh, lecture hall there in the Loma D. Armstrong Academic Center. He said, my little daughter's dying. I said, what? She's dying of spinal meningitis. Well, I read the newspapers maybe too much, as my wife can tell you, but I'd read about it in the Los Angeles Times. The fatal variety of spinal meningitis was going around Los Angeles, and they had taken the little girl to a medical doctor, not a chiropractor, that makes any difference, but you know what I mean, a medical doctor had her blood and urine tested outside Carnal Clinic, all right, so you believe it, and she had the fatal variety of spinal meningitis, and she was shaking and going into convulsions, and her fever was raging, and she was dying. And he said, Mr. Meredith, will you come out and anoint her? I said, sure. I called my secretary. There was a phone over there on the side somewhere and asked her to cancel the appointments that I had, and I went out and followed Dennis to his house and anointed the little girl. I was a very human man. I had all kinds of vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed, just like you today. I was not perfect, but I was trying. And I was very touched by this tiny little girl. I had a little beautiful daughter myself. And it moved me to see her like that, dying. I prayed very fervently. And right after I prayed for her, the convulsion stopped, and she went completely to sleep. Well, we hoped that was good. We didn't know, but we had trust in God. Later... That evening, her mother called me and said, Mr. Meredith, she said she woke up, the fever's gone, she's feeling better already, she wants something to eat. (laughs) And so then she went back to sleep and slept about 14 hours and woke up the next day and wanted to play. And three or four days later, she was in church. And I said, you sure you should bring her to church? I shouldn't have had the faith myself. I should have had. And they said, no, she's been healed. That's right, I better not, you know, she was in church. Everything was gone right away because of Almighty God. Certainly not because of me but Almighty God. Then I worked with Mr. Armstrong many times, again, not because I was better, but I was a pioneer student and got to know him, and he often asked me to come and join him in anointing the clause. And as we sent out hundreds of clause, many more than we do now, because people had more faith and the work was bigger, big stacks of clause every few weeks, and we pray fervently over them. Mr. Armstrong often would read a few of the letters of people who had cancer, heart attacks, and then read some scriptures, and then we'd pray. And he and I, or he and Herman Hay and I, or whatever, not more than three of us ever, and ask God to bless those claws. Sometimes he did it just by himself, too, I'm sure, but sometimes he asked us to join him. And we found that over the years, about one-third, this is not scientific, but I, I being, being from Missouri, the show me state, I kind of wanted to know, and I'd go and ask the mailroom and everybody else, about one-third would write back they were healed. About one-third were healed later, weeks or months later. Another third said they weren't healed or died or probably weren't healed, were never heard from again. What's the difference? Well, God may have had a special purpose sometimes, we don't know. 
Other times they may have lacked faith. But about one-third were healed right away, and there were thousands and thousands of claws sent out. Right now, for the sake of the new brethren and the young people here, and I don't want anyone lying, I don't want anyone exaggerating in this room before God, but I would like to ask you older brethren who've been in the church, how many of you have had genuine, not just got over a cold, but genuine supernatural healing where you knew it was a healing from God? Raise your hands. You young people, please just get up and look around or something if you want to. Looks to me like about 15 or 20 hands. Thank you very much. And the whole group here is just about 116. So it looks like more like 20 hands. We've had that here. I've asked that question many times in many places across the United States. Sometimes scores of hands would go up. But as we die out, the older generation, there are fewer hands because there's been less faith. But you you looked around. You saw there were 15 to 20 hands went up of people that really knew they'd been supernaturally healed by the great God of the Bible. I can never forget Mrs. Beam in Salt Lake City, like a beam in the ceiling, who had breast cancer. And one breast had already been cut off, and she was scared to death. She was not baptized at first. She came on into the church then to trust in God, and the cancer then ended up in the other breast. And she was dying. And they took her right back to this great big hospital and the same cancer specialist. Again, we're not talking about, you know, naturopaths or something, just so you understand. They went to medical doctors who said the same thing. You could smell it, in fact, the brethren said. And they had a whole team of ladies taking care of her. And finally, the minister was really stirred. He'd prayed for her a couple times before. But one night she called, literally shaking and crying. She'd been clawing herself and banging on the walls. The pain was so awful. And she said, please come over. And when he came over in the middle of the night, she said, please pray that God will heal me right now or let me die. I can't stand it anymore. And the minister said, I was shaken. And he prayed for her very fervently. And they said, even then, it kind of scared them because for about one or two minutes, you know, it seemed like one or two hours, but 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, three seconds, you know, you have to, even 30 seconds seems like a long time. She was still going like this. And all of a sudden, they said she stopped and her hands loosened and tears came to the eyes of some of the ladies with her. They knew what happened. She says, it's gone. And it was gone. And she was completely healed. It was so dramatic. I was director of the ministry. I had been to Salt Lake for a long time, so I used the excuse. I went, flew back there to preach. And I, after church went up and I saw who it was, they pointed her out. And the ladies were all standing around and said, some of you took care of her. Yeah, that's right. You saw her. And you knew she had breast cancer. Oh, yeah. And I talked to her. And I talked to her husband. And she was healed. Supernaturally healed by the great God. I have to say this, brethren, so you understand, and I've said it before, very sad, but so you understand something. Spiritual healing is more important than physical healing because two to four years later, that lady dropped right out of God's church, totally out of God's church, not just some other branch. There wasn't any of the branch back then. She just left, yet she'd been supernaturally healed by God. Spiritual healing is more important, but physical healing happens over and over and over again. So many healings have happened in God's church, and we've been very grateful. I've told you about the lady in Kansas that one of the McNair brothers and I met, I forget which one, on a baptizing tour. And after we'd baptized her, after we'd laid hands on her for the Holy Spirit, she wasn't trying to prove anything or get anything. We were about to leave. She said, boys, she said, I should tell you something. She was about 50 years old. We were boys. (laughs) We were just 21 or 22 years old. And her summertime, and she had short sleeves, 
And she said, you see these arms? She said, this arm is a little smaller. But she said, this arm was like one-third or fourth the size from the time I was born. It never developed. It just hung there like a rope. Just like a rope. Nothing there. But she said, Mr. Armstrong sent me an anointed cloth last summer, and right away it began to grow out. And she said, now it's almost as big as the other arm. But she said, God healed my arm. But she said, He's letting me build the muscles in this bad arm. So now I can milk the cows with both arms. <laughs> and when she said that, uh, tears came. I don't usually get emotional, but I did then. Now I can milk the cows with both arms. And God's letting me do my part to build the muscles in each arm. And God healed her over a period of a few weeks after she received the anointed clause. She had no reason to lie. Her Baptist friend was there who was not Pentecostal. She came along just to keep her company with these strange young men from, from Pasadena. <laughs> And she was there, and she was a very sincere lady. I'm sure she was telling the truth. Had nothing to gain by lying. God heals. The great God intervenes supernaturally, and He is God. And these big prophecies are going to happen, brethren, and they're going to speed up. So I say to you, brethren, or you new brethren, or you new people, you young people, believe that, understand that. And when these prophecies that you heard us talk about begin to happen and the American dollar goes on down and drought and famine begins to affect larger portions of the United States and Canada and elsewhere in a bad way, really bad, beyond what it's ever affected, and we begin to have some actual hunger and we begin to have some real disease epidemics and we begin to have some earthquakes far beyond what we've ever had and somehow these European nations start moving forward much more swiftly and that great spiritual leader rises up over there and it looks like that's the thing to do. If you don't join that system, you're going to lose your friends, you're going to lose your jobs, you're going to lose everything. No, you're not. You're not going to lose your eternal life. You better trust in the God of the Bible and not become a member of that system or take the mark of the beast. You better believe in this God, the God of the Bible, the real God, because these things are going to speed up and they are going to happen and they're going to shake people. And I can picture some of my former students who have left the church and know these things, and they're going to toss and turn when these things start to happen. The cold sweat's going to go down their back. They're going to say, wow, maybe it made the wrong decision. What's going on? What's going on? These things are happening. They'll begin to wake up. But God help you to wake up now. God help you, brethren, around the world to put your faith and trust in God, the God of the Bible. Believe and be encouraged because God is real and He is your God. And when you get down on your knees and pray, our Father who art in heaven, know that God, your Father, is a real God. And know that He says that every hair of your head is numbered. If you put your faith and trust in Him, He will take care of you. He will watch over you. He will deliver you. He will never leave you nor forsake you because He is a very real God.